0: Start your free trial by going to luminary.link note to self or download the Luminary app for free.
1: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
2: Earlier this month, I went to visit a cavernous retail space on West 15th Street in Manhattan. But instead of racks of clothes or gourmet snacks, it was filled with housewares from your future life. In the area marked kitchen, a milk container sends a text message if it spoils. Over in the den, a compact 3D printer gives DIY a whole new meaning. But maybe the biggest surprise is the enormous white thing propped up against the living room wall. It's a twelve foot kayak.
3: This actually is foldable. It folds into about a <laughs> three foot by two and a half foot bag.
2: So you could be like I've got lunch in my bag. Oh, and a kayak. Jack, yes. A foldable, full-size kayak that you can ride down a river, but then just take home on the subway. It's New Tech City, WNYC's look at how technology is changing the way we live. I'm Anoush Summer. So this week, a tour of an exhibit called The Home
0: of the Future
2: we'll discover how future city dwellers may make the best of their tight quarters. Then our Ilya merits learns how to figure out right now if your row house is a good candidate for cutting edge solar panels or if it's doomed to be chained to the grid forever. You looked at the, the numbers and it was like, oh, this, that's just too expensive. And to mark the death of one of the most popular to-do list apps out there, I talk good organizational hygiene with productivity expert Jill Duffy. Once you start to trust your system that things are where
1: you put them, you start to, to forget about them because you don't need to remember. In fabulous Disneyland Park at Anaheim, California, where in Tomorrowland, The future becomes the present. Monsanto Chemical Company, Plastics Division, presents the Monsanto House of the Future.
2: That was 1957. Dishwashers were the rage, and high-tech meant an electric toothbrush. Then it was all about the burbs.
1: Tomorrow always holds the promise of something new and exciting.
2: Now it's all about city living. By the middle of this century, the world's urban population is expected to almost double. 6.4 billion people, forced to eavesdrop on their neighbors every word, use ovens for storage and assemble IKEA furniture. Or maybe not. Come away with me to Manhattan and the Home of the Future exhibit, a showcase for appliances that talk to each other and furniture that comes apart on purpose. Meet my guide, Piers Fox.
3: Welcome please welcome oh, home, thank you so, so much. Uh, in this space, we are in the entrance zone, okay? So this is...
2: Piers is the founder of consulting firm PSFK. He's a man about the city, hobnobbing with tastemakers and artists, then reporting back to big companies on trends and what we'll be buying in the next 5, 10, 20 years. <laughs>
3: exactly.
2: His company opened this temporary pop-up exhibit in the Chelsea section of Manhattan to lure in clients and passing pedestrians so they can see and experience the stuff and the lifestyle he thinks we'll be coveting. He starts off by showing me how he turns on the lights with his iPhone.
3: Now, what's going to happen is the the systems are going to start talking to each other. So the doorbell, when the door knows that you've walked through the door... Um, there will be technology which will have, if this happens, that happens. No, no. And then, so the lighting might change. The, the, um, the Nest thermostats will change its temperature based on who walks into the r- room rather than just a person walks into the room. So a lot of these things are going to become connected and can become smart. A mirror
2: with super cameras that can check up. the dilation of the blood cells in your face and tell how fast yeah, your heart is so beating. Plants they, you that you let their owners know, know how to take care of them. them but some stuff, pretty low-tech that. stuff, too.
3: But we still want to entertain. We still want people around. But maybe we don't always want to have a six-person dinner table around. Mm-hmm. So we have things such as the PEG system, the PEG furniture system,
2: here says finding new ways to adapt small spaces is just as important as high-tech gear. Take the dining room, for example.
3: What is the Peg, Peg fern- Furniture, Furniture system. system? Basically, it's a pole that runs across the, the the width of your wall, and you can hang up tabletops, legs, um, Uh, chairs and basically hang them up and you bring them down whenever you want and you You just
2: get them them out of the way get
3: them out of the way i mean that's not
2: really high tech it's just sort of crafty yeah exactly
3: and i think that's what we say it's about tomorrow it's not jetsons space age we're talking about practical solutions that designers are coming up with um there's access because um there's access to new designs and new companies in a way that, that we didn't have before because the internet A young designer can come and build a chair, and they can sell online. They can sell their products and compete with the big boys. But
2: furniture like the PEG system isn't cheap. I start to wonder if the city dweller of the future is wealthy and kind of a control freak. Then we come to my favorite piece in the exhibit. I have my eye on that weird standing desk.
3: One of the big themes that everyone's talking about is this idea of... um, I, you know, people are talking about how sitting is this generation's smoking is mm-hmm. a big kind of saying <laughs> right now. Uh-huh. And so the the desk is designed so um, you have to stand up to, at it um, to do work.
2: A well-designed way to get off my butt while the house switches on the lights, adjusts the thermostat, and turns on Mad Men for me. I've seen my future. So I'm back from the future and in the studio, and with me is WNYC reporter Ilya Merritts. Hi, Ilya. Hi. And Ilya, you've just returned from your own journey into the world of solar power. But um, sorry, that hardly seems cutting edge.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, it seems like we've been talking about solar for a while, but do you have it?
2: No. I wish I did, though.
0: Okay, so if this is interesting to you, uh, an organization worth watching is this new group called Solarize Brooklyn. They call themselves New York City's first community solar project, helping people figure out how to cut through the paperwork and the incentives and actually make their own electricity. I went to Ditmas Park last week to see how it happens.
2: Okay, so here's Ilya Meritz from the rooftops of Brooklyn.
0: Actually, let's start on the porch, because that's where Zach and Adrian Fisher like to hang out on warm summer evenings. They own a big Victorian in Ditmas Park, and tonight they have a visitor. A solar assessor is here to talk with the Fishers about putting panels on their roof. It's not the first time they've considered this.
3: We had somebody come do
0: the site survey. Got a, Got a proposal, and and we looked at the, the numbers, and I was like, ah, this, that's just too expensive. That was five years ago. The question today is whether this solar assessor, his name is Robert Falacara, can offer the Fishers a better deal. Falacara says the technology has improved a lot recently, and the Fishers' house is a good candidate for rooftop solar. Um, we're looking at this system here. Um, will be on your upper south roof. South is actually your most phenomenal roof there can be. When you're facing south, you're getting sun for the great majority of the year uh, at a very good angle. Falacara envisions a system that would more than meet the fishers' annual energy needs. And uh, that will save you um, over $1,500 a year in your electrical bill.
3: That would be cool, and I would feel much less guilty about using air conditioning when it's so hot. <laughs>
0: The Fishers are an easy sell. The initial cost of equipment and installation, it's around $14,000, doesn't scare them. So, guys, uh, the next step is we basically talked about everything. I looked at what I need to in the house. Now it's time for us to be monkeys and climb the roof. Okay. All right? On the second-floor overhang, Falacara starts taking measurements with a pitch meter. From up here, you start to see potential, not just for the Fishers' house, but for all the rooftops just now catching the sunset. So far, Solarize Brooklyn has signed up almost 400 buildings in Kensington, Windsor Terrace, and Flatbush for assessments. If many of them say yes, this part of Brooklyn could become the city's first solar cluster.
2: So, Ilya, New York City's first solar cluster. And I, I, I did a little research here, and I understand that Solarize Brooklyn is not the first group. There's Solarize Seattle, Solarize Santa Barbara, Solarize Madison. What, what is the Solarize model?
0: So for years, individual homeowners who wanted to go solar basically were on their own. They'd have to find a contractor, navigate the permitting process, figure out what subsidies they might be eligible for, and then they kind of had to cross their fingers and hope that the calculation worked out and that they would make their money back. Solarize Brooklyn and other solarized projects in other cities function like buying clubs – They vet and select the installer and then collectively bargain for lower rates. What this basically does is it takes out a lot of that uncertainty, and it does a lot of the legwork for the homeowner.
2: So going solar was kind of a lonely project, Um, but has that changed how much red tape there is? Is there a lot of red tape?
0: It varies from place to place, but this is New York City, and so, yeah, it's considerable, but it is getting better David Sheeran is with Empower Solar, the contractor selected by Solarize Brooklyn. Empower is a Long Island company, but Sheeran told me he wasn't so interested in the huge New York market right next door until about five years ago when City Hall signaled it was going to make a real push to help people go solar. There's an attitude change. When we call the building department, God bless them, they used to hang up on me. Now... There's someone that picks up the phone, and they have a process and procedure for dealing with solar applications. Sheeran told me he's hired several workers, and he expects to hire even more because of the business he's now doing in New York City.
2: So, you know, I would think that one of the reasons why a homeowner would want to go solar is for reliability, right? I mean, we always have the sun, in theory. Um, But how did solar hold up after Sandy, Hurricane Sandy, when millions of people lost power?
0: Uh, solar installations were useless. No! <laughs> yes, uh, but it's not because the equipment failed. These home solar systems had to shut down for safety reasons. Basically, anywhere that there was a blackout, Con Ed needed to know that there was no electricity running through the local network before it deployed workers to go out and fix the wires. Otherwise, they might be killed or hurt. There is now some fairly new technology that would disconnect home solar customers from the grid in an emergency situation like Sandy, mm-hmm. basically so that the homeowners could keep harvesting their own power without touching the grid as a whole and, and putting people in danger. Eventually, as you say, that could be a real selling point for yeah, solar. Yeah,
2: I mean, that that to me makes – that would, would be one of the reasons why I would definitely want it. So, you know, if enough of us do go solar, which, you know, again, we've been talking about this for a very long time, could this eventually be a problem for the utility companies – I mean I read in the New York Times a couple days ago um, that some power companies in California and Arizona are starting to feel really threatened by the business model of solar. Yeah,
0: I saw that story too. Arizona and California are both ahead of us when it comes to going solar, and it figures because they have so much sun there.
2: Sunshine State, all that.
0: Exactly. Our local utility in New York, Con Edison, told me it has close to 1,300 residential and commercial clients on the grid in New York City and Westchester who make their own solar power. That's 1,300, that is not a no, lot. That's
2: nothing, right?
0: These customers can actually sell the excess power they don't use back to Con Ed in a program called Net Metering. Uh, Con Ed says the number of users doing this is presently not a threat to their business. Uh, and they're, in fact, they're proud to support it.
2: They told you that?
0: They told me that. They said on the hottest days of the year, as happens a lot around this yeah. time of year, they're really grateful for anything that can be done to reduce the strain on the electric grid.
2: Okay, so last question. If people want to find out about their own rooftops and how much power they could potentially generate, where do they go?
0: So there's a project called Sustainable CUNY at the City University of New York. They've done a lot of work in this realm to bring all of the potential players to the same table to make solar more doable. One of the tools that they now offer is called the NYC Solar Map. It's very cool. We'll link to it on our website. Basically, you just type in your building's address, and the map calls up a satellite image, and the program actually estimates your solar potential based on that blurry view of like a slate gray or a black rooftop. and and what your annual savings might be if you did go solar. So we've linked to it on our webpage, uh, but I'm sorry to say it's only for the five boroughs, so if you live outside of New York City, it won't be a help to you.
2: Tough luck, but maybe there's a Solarize something coming to a city near you.
0: I guess I would just, yeah, if I lived in some other town, I would just Googleize, uh, you know, Solarize. and Solarize. Solarize Springfield if I were Bart Simpson.
2: Nice. Ilya, fun story.
0: I think actually only Lisa Simpson would do that. What? (laughs)
2: Bye, Ilya. Okay,
0: bye, bye, bye.
2: Astrid used to be one of the most popular to-do apps out there. It had a quirky little hand-drawn octopus icon, an intuitive organizing system. It was downloaded over four million times. And I, Dear Listener, tried out numerous task apps, including Reminders, Remember the Milk, and Wonderlist, before becoming an Astrid user. So I was annoyed, to put it lightly, when Yahoo bought Astrid in the spring and then made plans to shut it down. I decided to turn my negative energy into something more positive and productive by inviting in PC Magazine's resident productivity expert Jill Duffy to talk about why we've all become so obsessed with tracking everything we do and how I should organize my life.
1: Once you start to trust your system, that things are where you put them, you start to, to forget about them because you don't need to remember. You trust. In the same way. Way that people have one place that they put their car keys or their house keys, and you always know they're going to be there. You stop thinking about it. So I think that's that's one of the the, the key points to being um, productive and efficient and organized is is trusting your system and sort of having it in very neat compartments.
2: But this idea of finding a system. I mean, it sounds like you came to it pretty organically. You had a crazy home life. You were like, nope, uh, that's not how I'm going to be as an adult. Don't you feel like I mean the fact that you have a job specializing in productivity, what's going on in our society? Are we are we busier? Is there more 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 going on? Why do you think that that this has become such a hot topic?
1: You know, in the in the last maybe five, ten years especially, there's been this push away from work life balance, which used to mean, you know, the separation of work and life, leisure time is here, business is there, and that people are really gravitating now
2: toward um Meshing them both together. And what are the requirements that comes with that for, for scheduling, for keeping our tasks on check Yeah, when you start I, to blend those two well, worlds?
1: I, I see a lot of people who no longer have a compartment for business calendar and a compartment for home life. Everything is just together. That's okay if that's what you want to do. Um, but still, your scheduling app should be one thing. Uh, I use Google Calendar a lot. Mm-hmm. One thing I like about that is it will sync to other apps so that if you want to change from one app to another, you're you're not changing your core data because that's stored in Google. You're mm-hmm. just changing the interface you're using for looking
2: at it. So... If you commit to, say, Google, that they own your calendar, they own your inbox, they own all of these things, does that limit you in how you potentially can go forward organizing yourself? You're you're kind of stuck there. I don't think so
1: because there are certain tools like Google that syncs with everything else. It's a very open platform that Google uses so that a lot of other apps – are accessible to the data that you keep in Google. Now, some people have privacy concerns about that. That's fine. There are plenty of other tools where you don't have to keep your information with one company. Um, You can keep it localized on your desktop if you don't want to sync, if you want to make sure that that information isn't going out anywhere. Um, But if you trust that another company is going to keep your data safe, it does give you that flexibility to use other tools
2: that can connect to it. Okay, let's talk about... Basic organizational hygiene. (laughs) What do you recommend to people? And Jill, what are your three favorite apps? All right. So I'm a big to-do
1: person. Mm -hmm. Um, The one that I use is called Awesome Note. I
2: just heard about this.
1: I love it. One of the things I love is that it's color-coded. And I'm kind of a visual person in some ways. So I have a pink folder for everything that's personal, a blue one for work. I have my shopping list in there that's orange. And I can always remember, the moment that I open that app, I know where I'm going. Uh, Another app that I really love is called Easily Do. Mm -hmm. And it connects to your email and your Facebook account and your Twitter account. And it finds things that are coming up in your life and automates them for you. My third, let's... uh, I'm going to have to say Evernote. Mm. Evernote has been really instrumental in becoming a place where I take meeting notes in particular. Um, They have geolocation information tagged to them. So if I don't remember the name of the person I talked to but I remembered where I was, I can find the note. I can see what we talked about. I might have an audio recording of an interview that I did with a person. Um, I keep lots of notes about upcoming articles that I'm going to write in there so that I kind of have a draft. Um, It's Evernote is really wonderful as long as you figure out what it is you want to do with it. It's kind of so open and so capable to do so much that when people get started with Evernote, they often find themselves looking at a blank canvas for a long time. But once you're in it, there's no turning back.
2: Now, we're talking about email. We're talking about all different kinds of apps, Evernote, um, to-do lists, all of these different things. There's something, though, that happens, I think, when you – type everything in that you need to do, it kind of all gets equalized. Do you know what I mean? It all looks the same in a way when it's digitized. Whereas Mm. when I used to keep a list with pen and paper, you know, I could underline stuff and write in bold and for some reason writing it put it in my brain Mm. in a different way. It's almost like you type it in somewhere and then out of sight, out of mind. Do you find that – what are ways to like – Keep yourself
1: on target. <laughs> I do find that writing things down helps me sort of um, solidify
2: them. But you still use a pen and paper?
1: I'm, I'm no, but typing. So um. my fingers can type. The same way that I write, and I can remember what I've written that way. Um, pen and paper is fine if that's what you like. I've, I've had a couple of people who are sort of productivity experts and organizational experts tell me they like that because they find it's less interrupting, especially if you're having a conversation with somebody and you want to write something down. So what you could do is keep a pen and paper list and take snapshots of it so that it's syncing to another place like Evernote. Oh. Uh-huh.
3: <laughs> what I
1: don't like about pen and paper lists, though, is it's very hard to reorganize everything you've written down, if your priorities change. So on an electronic list, we can either um, change the order. Usually there's a drag-and-drop method of just sliding things up and down so that your highest priorities are literally literally highest. They're, they're at the top of what you see. And then the lower priority things fall to the bottom. Jill, this was an extremely productive discussion, actually. <laughs> Thank you so much for having Thanks me. Thanks so much for being here. <laughs>
2: Jill Duffy is a specialist in productivity for PC Magazine. Oh, and I bet you're dying to know which organizing app I ended up with, right? Well, read about why I decided on the Things app, and I'm committing to GTD for now. Nerd out with me at NewTechCity.org.
1: Right now, I'm really obsessed with medical technology. So I'm really curious to see like what the crowdsourcing of ideas could be for health and medical innovation.
2: That's one of the people who has taken our hackathon survey. And if you've ever gone to a hackathon, we want to hear from you. Take two minutes. Go right now to NewTechCity.org and let us know if you think hackathons are just a fad or the only way that things are getting done these days. Thanks for listening. I'm Anusha Marodi, and this is New Tech City from WNYC.